Welcome to Bethany. Oh, beautiful. My name is Tom. Now I can talk, talk more normal. Oh, so glad you're here. It is wonderful. I look forward to this time with you and with God all week long because he does such wonderful things. We're going to have a celebration of his love and his word and his provision this morning. And so glad you're here to share it with us. Um, we like to remind ourselves what God has called us to, why we're here. So I'd ask you to sit up straight, clear your throats, and read this with me. We are to be a growing, relevant family of missionaries who desire to see Western and Gunnison know Jesus Christ. The best thing you can ever do for anybody else is bring them to Jesus. The best thing we can do for each other is build each other up in Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing. That's what we're here for. We're in a kingdom series. We've been going through the gospel of Matthew, looking at Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. If you're following along in your Bibles, you may want to turn there and put your finger there. Uh, or if you don't have your Bible with you, you want to follow along in the wonder of big screen high def, we'll be projecting the verses we're talking about. Either way, it's the Word of God, and we're, it's a wonderful thing. This morning, we have an invitation from Jesus Christ himself to opt out of the economic meltdown. We have an invitation from Jesus Christ to opt out of the economic meltdown by be living like a trust funder. We get to live like a trust funder. If you don't know what that means, stick with us because it's an exciting, wonderful plan of God. And we have a choice. You and I have a choice. We can either be victims affected by and reacting to, like everybody else does, the economic meltdown, or we can choose Jesus' way. And he offers us truth and hope and provision. I'm going to choose Jesus' way, and I hope you will too. What exactly is the economic meltdown that we're talking about? Well, let's take a look at that. Simply put, we are facing the greatest economic crisis, some say, since the Great Depression. It has been called, this slide appropriately, the 2008 stock market slide. And as you can see in this first section, this is... The beginning of the summer, things are going well. The Bethany Belugas are, are winning every game. And then things start to get soft. They start declining. This is the stock market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Then things level off for a while. We lose a couple of games, but we still win the conference. So there we are right there. We're happy. The stu college students are back. We like the W. That's all good. And then right there. That's a big slide in October. And at its greatest point, stocks slide within this uh, month uh, or within this calendar year between 30 and 40%. And uh, that, is, that is awful, awful. Uh, some have equated it to eating half a rancid turkey, washing that down with a gallon of habanero salsa, and then getting strapped into the front seat of a roller coaster that loops, and the ride lasts 10 months. It's not, it's not anything but a messy situation. Slide two, if we could bring that up. This is home values. Home values over a number of years. The highlighted portion is within uh, the last two years. If you're like the people in Gunnison, Summer comes around, you don't want to move, but you put your house up for sale anyway to see if you can get a ridiculous profit, retire off the proceeds. You're not going to do that anymore 
Because in 2006, the slide begins and home values slide uh, precipitously down. And uh, there is more rancid turkey, more habanero salsa, more roller coaster right there. And that is what we're looking at. And it's more than charts. This is real people's holdings. This is real people's homes. And it's got folks worried. It's got them worried more about their finances than at any time in recorded history. They've been tracking the consumer confidence. And uh, it, it, this month, just this past week, hit its lowest point um, on record. So what has it got us worried about? What has it got us worried about? A lot of things. If you're uh, working and you're looking toward retirement, it's got you worried about maybe your 401k, your retirement plans. My mom is 64. She called me. She said, I'm going to have to work till I'm 85. I said, just don't worry, mom. Don't worry. That's the message. Her ne- your nest egg, maybe saving your house, maybe paying your mortgage. Uh, maybe you have an adjustable rate mortgage, and it's just going crazy now. There's a tight job market, low consumer confidence, low consumer spending. If you've got a business, you might be concerned about that. Frozen credit, hard to get loans, whether you're talking about cars or college or anything in between. Uh, It's now starting to thaw out a little bit. Some people are even worried about where their next meal is going to come from or where their next house payment is going to come from or where their next utility payment is going to come from. And Jesus was talking in Matthew 16, about people who were worried about this very thing. And he hung around with them, and he gave them hope. And we look in Matthew chapter 6 in those verses, and again and again, he has three words that he says, and it's do not worry. Do not worry. Say it with me. Do not worry. So, again... Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And Jesus says it again, and again, and again. We may not know where our next meal is coming from. We may not know where our next utility payment is coming from. We may not know where our next mortgage payment or our next tuition payment is coming from, but we can know who our next meal and payment is coming from, and it's coming from Jesus, and he says, do not worry. How do I know this is the theme? Because in this, in this section of Scripture, in this story that he's telling to these people, he says that more than he says anything else. He says, do not worry. In 631, we look again in 625, say it with me, therefore I tell you what? Do not worry about your life, not only in the 25th verse, but in the 34th verse. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Say it again. Do not worry about tomorrow. His message is this. Do not worry. Why shouldn't we worry? Why shouldn't we worry? We're going to take a look at that. We're going to take a look at that. Slide number three shows... This light blue down here is the stock market. You can see it dipping, that little roller coaster ride. Blue, dark blue, is the home value market. And up top in the red, those are God's holdings right there. You can see that he was totally unaffected. You like my laser? You can see he's totally unaffected by the meltdown. By the meltdown. God's holdings remain 
at 100%. God is not broke. God is not short on cash. God is not low on flow. God has everything and was totally unaffected by the economic meltdown. God's assets are strong. And Jesus gives two illustrations in this scripture. First in verse 26, he's talking on a hillside to people who are concerned, people who are concerned as many of you are about the necessities of life. And he looks around them, he often uses things that they can touch and things that they can see and most relate to, to help them understand and grasp spiritual truths. And so he says, as he's out on the hillside, look up, and maybe there's a flock of birds coming, and maybe one lands on his arm. And he says, look at the birds of the air, they don't sow, they don't reap, or store away in barns, and yet, who feeds them? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Don't you think God loves you far more than the birds? And he's feeding them, and they're not worried. And he gives us a second second illustration. He wants to show them things that they can see, things that they can relate to. And he's on a field, and I imagine that there are lilies all around. He says, look down. Not only look up, look down. Look at the lilies of the field. 6.30. He says, they don't spin, they don't work. Yet Solomon, in all his most beautiful clothes, never looked as beautiful as one of they. And he goes on to say, if that is how, who clothes the grass? Say it with me. God clothes clothes the grass of the field, the flowers, which are here today and tomorrow are thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? You are the crowning achievement of creation. When he created the birds and the animals and the fields and the flowers, he said that was good. But when he created man and woman, he said, this is very good. Nothing else has he created in his image the way he has created you. And he loves you. And he loves you. He loves you. Jesus used common illustrations to communicate spiritual truths, things that the people he was speaking to could see and touch and relate to. He says, consider the birds of the air. Well, we're inside. We have no birds flying around in here. But I say, consider the dog of the purse. Yeah, this is quiche. I'm going to introduce you to quiche. Now, next week, quiche is a sermon prop this morning, so don't bring your pets next week. Um, frankly, I'm very glad that she's here because I don't think she, I don't think Keish is a believer. So I'm glad to have her here in church. This is Keish. She is fully grown. She is our dog. Uh, I wanted a, a, a St. Bernard and Shri wanted a, a smaller dog. So we compromised and we got Keish. Um, you can see I've watched the dog whisper. I am calm and assertive. She is calm and submissive, and she is our pet. Let me tell you a little bit about Keish. Keish does nothing of value, <laughs> nothing to work. This is Keish's life. What she does is she 
goes from one member of the family to another member of the family to be petted. Then she goes to another one to be petted. Ari comes over, sits on the couch. She goes over to Ari, and, and she's petted. And she also naps. She's good at napping. About seven hours a day, for my best count. In between all this petting and napping, she does nothing of value, except look puffy and small. Oh, she eats and drinks and does the other thing that comes with eating and drinking in a litter box, I might add. Look at Quiche. She is not worried about the stock market. She is not worried about her retirement fund. She is not worried about her basic needs. Why? Because she has seen me morning after morning, and she has seen Cherie take out a bag of food that weighs 20 times as much as she is. And every morning of her life, she has had a full food bowl and a full water bowl. And Keish, as stupid as she is, even by dog standards, is smart enough to know that somebody bigger and stronger and wealthier who loves her has always provided for her and always will. Some of us are not as smart as Keish. Consider the birds of the air. Consider the dog of the purse. Second example we're surrounded by celebrity and rich people and famous people. I'd like to introduce you to somebody. This is Jennifer Gates. Look how happy she is. You might recognize that last name. She's the 12-year-old daughter of Bill and Melinda Gates. She didn't know she'd be attending Bethany this morning, but she is. Look how carefree she looks. Look at that smile. She's just walking around. Do you think she's worried? Do you think Jennifer Gates is worried? She doesn't look worried. I bet that she doesn't put her head down on the pillow wondering if she's going to be able to make ends meet. I bet she is free from thinking there's ever going to be a financial situation that she faces that her father, who loves her, cannot handle. Why? Because she knows that her father is worth, even after the meltdown, an estimated cool 50 billion, with a B, billion dollars. That is serious bank. She knows that. Can you imagine what it must be like to have a father that has so much that you don't worry about finances? What must her life be like? To have that sense of inner peace for just one day would be wonderful to see what that's like. And here's the exciting part, that Jesus Christ himself offers to you and to me not just to have that feeling every one day, but every moment of every day. Because if Jennifer Gates can have peace of mind and peace of heart that her earthly father has enough love and enough resources to meet her every financial need, how much more then should we, who know of the love and riches of God our Father, 
not have that joy, that peace, that confidence that says we will never face a financial difficulty that our Father is not able to handle. And he says to us, do not worry. You are better than a child of Bill Gates. You are a child of the king if you belong to him. A child of the king and he owns everything. He owns everything and he loves you. We're going to be looking at all of this. So start thinking like it. Start believing like it. Start talking like it. Start walking like it. You're a child of the king. Start living like it. Amen. As we look, there's some practical things, four things that God wants us to remember and three things that he wants us to do. So if you're taking notes, here it is. The first thing God wants us to remember is that he owns everything. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and how much? Say it with me. Everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's right. He owns it all. All that you've seen, all that you have, it belongs to him. So here's something that might surprise you. Because God owns everything, in the economic meltdown, in the stock market dive, in the housing market decline, you lost absolutely none of your money, none of your assets. Guess why? Because it's all God's anyway, right? You lost nothing. He lost nothing. It's just the stuff that you can keep track of. And we get all worried about that. Oh, I'd be more secure if I saw my bank account climb back to where it was once or back to where I know other people's are. You might say that. And God is saying, I haven't changed. My wealth hasn't changed. My love for you hasn't changed. My desire to provide for you hasn't changed. Do not worry. Do not worry. It all belongs to God. I'd ask you to do something. Take out your credit cards and your debit cards, if you would. I know you've got them. I've watched you shop. I've smelled the burning plastic. If you have a credit card or a debit card or both, take them out. I got mine. They're not, they're not too smoky right now. I'd like you to do that because this is how most transactions take place. You got an assignment. If you got one with you, take it out. Your debit card is money that you have that you're going to spend. Your credit card represents money that you don't have that many of you are going to spend anyway. Something I'd like to put forward to ask you to consider about each card. Take a look at one of your cards. If you're, if you're not following along with the example, it's hard for you to do this. Um, you have two names on your card. One is a bank's name, right? This one's Wells Fargo. This one's Capital One. You have one name on your card that is a bank's name. You have another name on your card. It is your name. If it's not your name, I have friends in law enforcement, and we, we need to have a talk. You have two names on your card, the bank name and your name. But as we've seen through Psalm 21, there's one name that is not on your card, and that is the one that truly owns everything you have and everything you will have, and that is Jesus. So if you'd like to live radically for Jesus, if you'd like to do something that will remind you that everything is the Lord's, you have some permanent markers. 
about one on every other seat. I'd invite you to do what I've done. Write on the card, it's Jesus' money. Jesus' dollar sign. It's his. This will transform the way you spend. Trust me. When you have to take this out and look at it, you're going to make better spending choices, especially on the credit side. This has gotten us into more trouble as a, as a society than anything else. Why is that? I'd ask you to do that. I'd challenge you to do that. Anytime you go to a restaurant or something else and you pass this along, maybe the waiter or waitress says, it's all Jesus' money. Well, not only do you have to tip well now, but it might start a conversation where you can share your faith. I'm not ashamed. It's all his. Everything I've ever had, everything I ever will have. And it challenges us to remember this. No matter how much you or I have had in the past, our desire for more keeps coming. It outpaces what we currently have. That's the world's way. No matter how much we have. They asked one of the Rockefellers, how much is enough? Billionaire. How much is enough? He said, a little bit more. If our desire for goods and services and experiences and material things can keep growing, what if we as people of God had that same hunger, that same greed-fueled sense that we can never get enough of Jesus Christ? What if, no matter how much of his spirit we experience, we always wanted more? This will remind you of that. I challenge you to do that. It all belongs to him. That's the first thing to remember. It all belongs to him. Second thing to remember is God loves you. He not only owns everything, but he loves you. Look at 1 John 3.1. How great is the what? Say it with me. Love. The Father has lavished on who? Us. That we should be called children of God. He doesn't only have it, he lavishes it. As much as you love any other person, be that your spouse, your child, uh, whoever it is, the Jonas Brothers in the case of my daughter, God loves you incredibly more than you can ever conceive or imagine. And we'll look at the demonstration of that in a little bit. But he has lavished his love on you. So not only does he own everything, but you are to remember that he loves you. He loves you. The third thing to remember, not only that he owns everything, not only that he loves you incredibly, but he knows your needs. Matthew 6, 31. So what? Say it again with me. Do not worry. Yeah, I'm not hearing you, folks. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your, who knows? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He owns everything. He loves you incredibly, and he knows. When we go through tough times, we may be prone to think that God has forgotten us, that God does not know, that God does not care, and that leads to doubt, that leads to worry, that leads to sin. And he wants you to be in that place in the spiritual where Jennifer Gates is in the earthly, to know, to know don't doubt. Do not doubt. God loves you, and God knows 
He knows better than you do what the bottom line is. And he is the bottom line if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Do not worry. The fourth thing to remember, not only that he owns everything, that he loves you incredibly, that he knows your needs. Finally, that he loves to provide. You look at the Bible. He loves to provide things for his people. He rained down manna in the wilderness. He sustained a, a widow's food supply after everything was gone. He continued to, to do it during his earthly ministry with the loaves and the fish, a group of hungry, hungry people he was talking with. He provided for them. And we look at Philippians 4.19. And who? Say it with me. My God will meet how many of your needs? All your needs according to what? His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And my God shall supply all your needs. All your needs. Do you want a God that will supply all your needs? You've got one. You've got one. Four things to remember. God owns everything. God loves you. God knows your need, and God will provide. Three things that we're supposed to do. Three things that we're supposed to do. The first will come as no surprise. We've looked at it extensively this morning. Do not worry. Why not? It does no good. Jesus said in his passage, what, which one of you, by worrying, can accomplish anything good? Can accomplish anything. You can't add a day to your life. You can't add a, an inch to your height. You can't make a hair black or white. Well, some of you can, but not naturally. Um, don't worry. It does nothing good. We were experiencing a hurricane. I went to college at, at Tulane, and uh, a hurricane was coming in. A lot of people had never experienced one before. And I had a friend, Louie, on my hall and a, and a kid, Dan. And Louie's freaking out because he's from New York. He's never seen anything like this before. And we live on the 11th floor, and he's afraid. He says, everybody's worried. I said, don't worry. He says, everybody's worried. You're worried? I said, no, no, no. Dan's not worried. Look at Dan. And Dan's just playing his video. He gets Dan's too stupid to worry. No. Dan was too smart to worry. Here's the, here's the question. You're too smart to worry. You who know God are too smart to worry. Here's the second reason why we don't worry. Verse 32, if you bring that up. Jesus says, why don't you do this? For the pagans, those who don't believe in God, run after all these things and worry if they're going to have enough. We behave like people, we behave like practical atheists when we worry about whether we're going to be provided for. Yes, we need to go to work. Yes, we need to do all the things that God has placed before us. But if we worry about it, we act like we have no faith, like either we don't know God or we know God and he's not trustworthy. It insults and offends Jesus Christ, when we worry about things, he said, don't worry about. I've got it all in control. I have got it all in control. Do not worry. Said the robin, robin to the sparrow, I should like to know why these human beings run around and worry so. Said the robin to the sparrow, I think that it must be that they don't have a heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Do not worry. It accomplishes nothing, and it is offensive to God. Second thing we're to do, not only do not worry, but we're to trust him, to trust him. He said in verse 30, O you 
of little faith. Do you have little faith? Do you need big faith? He can give that to you. To trust him, even when every circumstance, every bill, everything in the news, every report, every forecast of the economy or health or anything else says otherwise, do you have the faith to trust him? Do you need greater faith? Or maybe you need faith in a bigger God. Maybe you have faith in a small God. That is not the God of the Bible. Have faith in a bigger God. Stop telling your God how big your bills are and start telling your bills how big your God is. He could give you more faith and faith in a bigger God. The last thing, don't worry, trust him. In verse 33, seek his kingdom. But seek first what? Say it with me. His kingdom and his righteousness. And how many of these things? All of these things will be given to who? To you as well. Put me first in your scheduling, in your mind, in your checkbook, in your thoughts, in your prayer life, in what your life is about. You put my desires first and I'll take care of the rest. I've got your back. It's completely the opposite of what we'd assume. We assume chase after the world, right? And you'll get it. And then include God with your spare time, with your leftovers. That's how many of us live. He's saying flip it on its head. This is the kingdom way of living. Write me a blank check of your time, your resources, your energy, your talents, your heart, your thoughts, and you're going to find me showing up in practical ways where everybody else is scrambling around worrying how they're going to survive. It's not what we experience here a lot. That is not American Christianity for the most part. American Christianity says, once I do all the things that I think I want to do and need to do, if I have time, then I'll volunteer. Then I'll give. If after I spend all the money that I need and want, buy everything I've ever wanted, then if I have a little bit left over, we give God our leftovers, and then we wonder why he doesn't provide for our needs. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll take care of the rest. Doesn't make sense in the natural. But Jesus is calling us to trust don't worry, trust him and seek first the kingdom. We can advance one kingdom or another. It will either be his or it will be yours. When we make the decision to advance his, he starts showing up in miraculous ways. Put him first. Becoming a trust funder means simply this, trusting in the funder. Trusting in provider God. Resting. Not being having more peace and going to bed feeling God is in control. Not feeling that when, we're, when the bank account is at its highest. When things on the outside feel most secure. When things on the inside are secure. It doesn't matter what's happening outside. 
It can storm. It can crash. It can thunder. It can lightning. The threat can be incredible, and you can have that peace. My dog has it. Jennifer Gates has it. Do you? Jesus is asking us to opt out of the economic meltdown by becoming and living like a trust funder. It is a great way to live. It is the only way to live. I pray that you'll do that this morning. I don't know where you're at personally. What is the next step? Maybe you've never realized that God owns everything or that he loves you or that he knows your needs or that he will provide your needs. Maybe you're torn up with worry. Maybe you're running low on trust. Or maybe you're not seeking first his kingdom. Whatever that next step is this morning, I ask you to take it in prayer. I want to look at a final scripture. It's Romans 8.32. Look how much God loves us. He who did not spare his own son, Jesus, for you, but gave him for us all, will he not also, along with him, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? When he saw us in our greatest debt of sin that we could not pay, he paid it for us through Jesus on the cross. A God who would give that lavishly Will he withhold your needs when you cry out to him? Never, never. He says when we receive Jesus Christ, when we accept his payment on the cross for our sins, that bill is paid now and forever. He provided there and he can provide here. Do not 